Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, If the dead are not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. And one of the central teachings of the New Testament, one of the things around which not just Paul's teaching, but the teaching of Jesus, to be honest, and the other writings of the New Testament as well, is this idea that whether we're alive or dead, there will come a moment when we stand before the judgment of God. Why do we believe that? That's fundamental to being a Christian. Paul, that's the big argument in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, is this isn't one of those doctrines that you can take or leave. It's fundamental. It too much hinges on it. You can't deviate from this truth. Why do we believe that? The world that surrounds us is very skeptical. The world that surrounds us has lots of doubts about even there being a life after death, let alone there being a judgment by God of those who have died as well as those who are still living when that judgment happens. Why do we believe that? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we go through this series on why do we believe that. Uh, and, and the first reason is the same reason we give every week. All Christian faith comes from what the Word of God plants in our hearts. Christianity does not hinge on being able to prove to people who haven't had the Word of God or who have resisted the Word of God, it does, its credibility doesn't hinge on being able to force people to believe this particular doctrine or that particular. We're not in the business of saying, well, separate and apart from whether or not you believe in Jesus or whether or not you've come to faith in, in Christ through the Word of God, let me talk to you about why you should believe in the existence of God or why you should believe in the Bible or why you should believe in the resurrection of the dead or the judgment of God. I mean, we're not in that business. That's not how this works. Again and again and again, we are in the business of saying, like Philip said to Nathaniel, John chapter 1, verse 46, come and see. We are inviting people to say the perspective that you are currently inhabiting, if you're not a Christian, the, the, the position you find yourself in, the, the perspective you are currently inhabiting, probably does prevent you from seeing the truth of these things. So, come and see. Come into the circle of the Word of God. Let the Word of God have its effect on your heart, the, the effect that uh, it's trying to have. Let it be planted within you and let it grow and then these things will become more and more sensible to you. That's always our first response when the world asks us question is, come and see. Come and see. Some people say, okay. Some people reject that, and that's really not our problem. We just are in the business of inviting. Come and see. Another objection that I think people sometimes have, and, and, and maybe they're sincere or maybe they're just objecting for the sake of objecting, but, but I do hear people ask from time to time, what right, really, does God have to judge us? What right does God have, really, to stand in judgment over me? 
I am a full-grown, assuming I am, a full-grown adult human being. I make my own decisions. I judge what I do as right or wrong. And nobody, not even God, has the right to judge my choices. People do say things like that. What do we say in response? I think that is to imagine a very different God than the God that the Bible talks about, first of all. That is to imagine one of the small gods, the kind of beings that uh, when we are, when human beings are thinking, we might imagine. Gods that are within the world, that are part of the cosmic system, that are what we would maybe today call super beings, but they're within the world. The God of the Bible is, is the creator and sustainer of the world. He is the one that gives us existence moment by moment and this world existence moment by moment. It's easy to imagine beings who would have the power to judge us. And I think most people who make this objection, that's what they're doing. They're saying, God just happens to be the biggest and the strongest. And so, yeah... If, if he's strong enough, I guess he can come in and punish us, punish us if he wants to or reward us if he wants to. But it's really just a question of the fact that he is he's the strongest. And that, again, is to misunderstand what the Bible actually says about God. Because God is the creator. He is the sustainer. And he is the perfectly just God. Judge of the world. Psalms 18, verses 30 and 31. As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? There are many beings. It's easy to imagine beings with enough power to judge us, but only the God of the Bible has the right to judge. He is perfect. He is perfect. When we imagine the gods of Greek mythology, we see them judging each other, fighting with each other, working at cross-purposes to each other. We see them doing foolish things and evil things. None of that is even possible when we're talking about the God of the Bible. There's not even a, a hint, a shadow of turning within Him. He is perfect. And His judgments are perfect. And so when Christians talk about the judgment day, they aren't just talking about the accidental exercise of tyrannical power, which I think is how most people imagine it. We are talking about the source of all of our goodness, the source of all of our sense of justice, finally being brought to bear to sort out what is truly good and what is truly bad. That's the Christian idea of the judgment. And we say to an unbelieving world, come and see. Christians don't claim, the next point I want to make to you is, Christians don't claim that God's judgment after death is obvious. After all, it's in our Bible 
Some of the first skeptical things are said about the judgment of God and what happens after death. Ecclesiastes 3.21 Who knows if the human spirit rises up and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is sort of writing from the position, for most of the book, he's writing from the position of, well, what can you know if all you have is what human beings are capable of figuring out? Without help from God, what can you know? And, and it is hard to know. Nobody's been. We don't know. Christians don't claim that God's judgment after death is an obvious truth or is obvious. Only that the alternatives are even harder to accept once you think about them. That's what we claim. And that's what Scripture claims. See, Christianity did not make up God's judgment. The idea of being judged after you die. That is a widespread belief. We find it in ancient Egyptian manuscripts being judged. We find it in Chinese literature. We find it in Hindu literature. We find it in, in literature, in cultures all around the world. The idea that somehow, some way, there is some manner in which after death we are, we are held accountable. And why is that? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes sort of walks you through why the alternatives to that view don't make much sense. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.14. There's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. I, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's just being honest. He's, just, he's putting into words what a lot of us, even Christians, worry about sometimes. Why is it that in this world... Sometimes those who are the most righteous are also the most, have the most unpleasant or unhappy lives. They suffer. They're persecuted. And those who are wicked or appear to be wicked seem to be blessed and happy and live long lives and wealthy lives and healthy lives. Why? Why is that? That's a problem that's addressed and, and asked about many times in Scripture. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that just, that just makes everything seem pointless. And that's the real problem. Death comes. And if there is no justice before death, which in this life there appears not to be complete justice, and death comes and that's the end of us, then there's no justice at all. If things are never, ever to be made right, then this urge I have to try and do the right thing, this urge I have to try and be the right kind of person, does it even make sense? Does it even make sense for me to continue to try to live a righteous life, to take care of my family as opposed to just going off and abandoning them? To tell the truth at my work as opposed to just saying whatever it is I think will gain me some advantage. I mean, why should I try to be moral if morality itself makes no sense because of the existence of death? Injustice is never answered if there is no judgment. 
Things are never put right if there is no judgment. Those who are wicked are never called to account. Those who are righteous are never rewarded if there is no judgment. It makes no sense. Now, there are some who are willing to say, that's right, morality makes no sense. And that's okay if they want to say that, but but it's very difficult for them to turn around then and say, but you should still try to be moral. You can't have it both ways. Either it makes sense to try and be moral, or it doesn't. And you have to, to, to tell us which of those things that you believe. How could it make sense to be moral? The writer of Ecclesiastes comes to his final conclusion at the very last two verses of his book. Now all has been heard, he says. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all humans. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He's already told you earlier in the book that God doesn't bring every deed into judgment here. And so whether He followed His conclusion all the way out, we certainly are able to that sometimes, If not in this life, then there must be some other time after this life when God calls every deed into judgment. It's the only way to make sense of the way this world is. What Christians claim is every other way of thinking about morality is going to end up leading you into more and more and more self-contradictions. Sometimes people make this objection to this belief. They say, the God I believe in is a God of love. The God I was taught about is a God who loves everyone. How could a God like that ever judge people? He will only love people. How could a God judge if He is a God of love? And the Christian answer to that is a, is a complicated one. It's actually a, a fairly mature one. But here's what the texts say, both in the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament. The love of God does not prevent the judgment of God. It requires it. The love of God does not prevent the judgment. It requires the judgment. And the reason is what we've just been talking about. There has to sometime, somewhere, be an accounting. There has to somewhere, sometime, be a time when those who try to seek God and live in covenant with Him are blessed by God. And those who reject God are punished. Luke 18:7 And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? The answer is implied. Well, no, of course not. Eventually, the humble people of God, Christians and before Christianity, who ask God for justice, who ask God for mercy, who ask God for the wrongs to be made right, 
Sooner or later, those prayers, God is going to answer because He's God. That's basically the message in Revelation chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11, when He opened the fifth seal, that's Jesus, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. God is perfectly loving and perfectly just. This world is in a fallen state. Evil is not always punished. Good is not always rewarded. There will come a time when those things are made right. When the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. When everything is set to the way it should be when the wicked are punished and when the righteous are rewarded. That has to happen if God is who the Bible says He is. And so we believe. The love of God, I mean, this is a strong doctrine, I will grant you that. This is not a nursery school doctrine. This is a doctrine for adults. This is part of the meat of the Word. But the love of God, the fact that God is loving means that there will be a judgment. There are those who claim, in fact, Second Peter chapter 3 tells us, there will always be people who scoff at this idea. And there will be lots of people who say, they think they know what happens after death. Nothing at all, or this, or that, or the other thing. How are we supposed to sort all that out? Isn't it better to just say we don't know. Many claim to know what happens after death, but only Christ has passed through death and into the resurrection. That's the Christian answer. Many are going to say all kinds of things about what happens after death. We put our hope, if we are Christians, we put our hope in the fact that we follow a risen Savior. We follow a Savior who has passed through death out into the resurrection life that is to come. He already lives that life, and He is inviting us to join Him in that life at the end of time. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God, by miracles, wonders, signs which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus speaking in this vision he grants to John, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is not someone who took a five-minute trip into heaven or a 90-minute trip or, or, or a two-day trip into death. 
Jesus is not someone who, who came back, was snatched from the brink of death to live again and then die again. Jesus is someone who has passed through the bondage of death that every human being faces. He has come out the other side into what God has prepared for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, the resurrection life. Now death has no more hold on Him, and He says, I now have the keys to death and Hades. I now have the ability to call you forth from your own grave, from your own death. That will happen. One day everybody will be called forth by Jesus, some to life, some to everlasting destruction. What if, as often happens here in Oklahoma, you step out one evening and you see a truly magnificent sunset? I mean, we have some pretty good sunsets most days. But every now and then the weather conditions are just right. You get large clouds piled up in various configurations and the sun's rays start to hit that and paint it all different colors. Blues and reds and oranges. And, and it's just some days you just have, you need somebody to share that with. Come, come, come and look at this. You've got to see this sunset. What if your friend or whoever it is you're talking to is watching TV and they say, why should I? Can I see the screen from out there? No, you can't see the screen. You're going to get to see the sun. Yeah, but can I watch the real Housewives of Guthrie? Uh, I, mean, I, I won't be able to see my show from... No, you probably won't be able to see your show from... But you're going to see something so much better. It's just off. Could you prove to them that what you're going to show them is better. No, you probably don't have a way to do it from the perspective where they are. There's pro- the only thing you can say is, please trust me, come and see. Brothers and sisters, that is the core of evangelism for us. That is it. We have found something that is good. We have found something that transforms our life. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And each day, you and I are feeling the power of that resurrection as He's already transforming you and me. We, I mean, it, doesn't, it happens in fits and starts. We know we fail a lot too. But, but you and I have already started to taste, to feel the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to pull us into the life that He already enjoys and that He is inviting us into. And what we're saying to our disbelieving friends and people around us is, come and see. I have found something wonderful. I want to share it with you. God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the living and the dead. There's nothing any human being can say or do to prevent that from being the truth. Every one of us will stand before God in the judgment day. The beautiful thing is that as you stand before God in Jesus Christ, the resurrection life of Jesus will already be manifested in you. And you will be granted that final freedom from death that is everlasting life. If you want to receive that amazing blessing from Jesus Christ, if you need 
prayers from this church or help that we can give you in one way or another, then we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.